Hey friends, I'm Michael Kingswood. It's story time. Don't have a whole lot of news to share with you, uh, so let's go straight into the reading. Continuing, drawing near the end of the Pericles Conspiracy, the science fiction novel we've been reading for the last, jeez, oh many weeks now, um, interspersed by hiatuses as I got distracted back in the fall and... A couple of douchebaggery things happened here this spring. I'm sure you remember them and are still living through the effects of some of them. Anyway, um, continuing on, this is chapters 60 and 61 today. Uh, 63 chapters total in the book, which means we're drawing very near the end. So last time we were uh, together, the, the various heroes, Joe and Malcolm and Grant, had gotten on board the Agrippa and managed to evade the uh, United Earth ship Bunker Hill and blasted away to the stars to try to deliver the alien eggs home. And last we saw them, they were going to sleepy sleep in their uh, cryo-suspension chambers because it's a 270-some light-year journey. Even at relativistic speeds, it would still be 70-some years for them. And yeah, they are taking a nap. So that's uh, what they're doing. Let's see what happens next. Talk to you on the flip side. Chapter 60. Wake Up Call. Electronic beeping slowly intruded onto Joe's consciousness. Faint at first, but gradually growing louder, it penetrated her slumber first in her subconscious, evoking odd dreams of being followed by an eternally beeping robot. Slowly, as she began to wake, the fact that she was dreaming registered. People don't dream in cryosuspension. Her eyes fluttered open. The lighting in the cryo-chamber was dim to allow her eyes to adjust. Months, or in her case, years, of slumber necessitated a gradual return to normal activity. But there was light enough to see, so she found the control pad easily enough. She tapped the controls and with an audible click and a soft hiss as the tank's atmosphere equalized with the rest of the ship, the tank's lid slowly opened. Pulling the electrodes from her chest and head, Joe sat up and stretched. She felt weak weaker than she had ever felt when coming out of cryosuspension before. But then, to her knowledge, no one had ever been under for as long as she had. The massage units in the chamber, though adequate to prevent muscle atrophy during shorter journeys, clearly were not able to prevent it completely during her long slumber. She managed to stand without too much difficulty and looked around. Malcolm and Grant were still asleep, per the planned wake-up sequence. The captain is always the last to sleep and the first to rise, at least on Joe's ship. Joe hobbled over to the wall console. She almost fell twice, only reaching the wall and leaning a hand against it stopped her from collapsing completely there at the end. She was in bad shape. She tapped the display to life and was unable to suppress a feeling of anxiety. The fact that she was standing on the wall that was in line with the longitudinal axis of the ship and not standing on the ring's outer wall or floating meant that the engines were firing, decelerating the ship. But were they decelerating at the right star system? The navigation status display flashed onto the screen and Joe breathed a sigh of relief. Ship's position plotted exactly on the projected course. They were about three days from the outskirts of the alien star system, with twelve hours left on the deceleration burn. Plenty of time to get it ready. She forced herself erect and slowly, carefully, maneuvered over to Malcolm and Grant's tanks and checked their status. Five minutes remained on their wake-up cycle. As their tanks slowly thawed and the two men began the usual pre-waking movements, Joe ran through everything that needed to be done to prepare for the meeting in her mind. There was a lot to do, but the tasks were mostly every day, easily accomplished. They did not make any of it less important, though. Soft hisses, 
from each tank announced their opening. Joe put on a smile of greeting as the men groggily rubbed at their eyes and sat up, working their jaws slowly to work the dryness from their mouths. Malcolm was the quicker to throw his feet out of his tank and stand up, but then he had done this countless times before. Morning, Joe, he said, flashing a grin at her. Then he pushed himself up onto his feet and his knees promptly buckled beneath him. Joe rushed over and put an arm around his shoulder to help him onto his feet. Easy there, take it slow, she said, as though she was not in about the same shape he was. Slowly, she got Malcolm up onto his feet. He leaned back against the side of his tank and smirked in embarrassment. Joe turned to check on Grant. and found him sitting upright, his feet dangling over the edge of his tank. He was leaning forward slightly, his palms resting on the side of his bed next to his knees. He looked a little green. It's normal to feel a little bit queasy, Joe said, trying to sound soothing, especially for your first time. He nodded and flashed a slight grin at her. I'll be okay, he said. Then he doubled over and threw up onto the floor. The first thing Joe did after she, Grant, and Malcolm dressed was go up to the bridge and initiate a full forward sensor scan. Then she went below to eat breakfast. You do not know hunger if you have never come out of cryosuspension, and this was the longest cryosleep in history. Her stomach felt like a black hole that had taken up residence. She hurried to the mess, still a bit wobbly on her feet, and found Malcolm and Grant hard at work snarfing down as much food as they could. None of it fresh, of course, but even powdered and freeze-dried tastes like a king's feast after a long cryosleep. Do you think the plant survived? Joe asked in between bites of something that tasted of strawberries, but was certainly not. Malcolm shrugged. With no one to tend them for so long, he paused, considering. They probably overgrew their containers a long time ago. Could be at least some of them are okay. We'll see. He took a bite of his food, chewed with relish, and swallowed with a grin. Grant and I will check on them and on the other supplies after this. I presume you'll be on the bridge. Joe nodded. Wild horses could not keep her away from the bridge for long. Not now. Malcolm chuckled. Joe took another bite and looked at Grant. He sat silently, eating slowly, and with little sign of relish. Physically, he looked great. His time in cryosuspension had healed his wounds from the assault on Gagarin. Joe could hardly see the scar on his temple and forehead, and he had only a slight limp to show from his leg wound. Aside from a smattering of gray atop his ears that had not been there before, ah, the joy of aging while sleeping away the flight, he looked the same man Joe had met all those trillions of kilometers and decades before. But he was subdued now, more than the serious, business-like manner he had about him before. If Joe did not know better, she would say he was depressed. You okay? Joe asked. Grant looked up from his plate and shrugged slightly, just thinking. He paused, frowning slightly as though unsure whether or how to proceed. Then he shrugged again. I wonder what Thomas would think about all this if he was here. The question took Joe by surprise, though it really should not have. They may have slept away the years, but the passage of those years did not heal the mind the way that their passage in the waking state would. Joe knew that for a fact, just thinking back to the events that led up to Thomas's death brought to mind Bunker Hill and her crew members who had died at Joe's hand. It was like a knife in the gut still because she had not really had the time to heal yet, and neither had Grant. Joe forced the surge of guilt and regret down ruthlessly and glanced at Malcolm. He sat quietly, chewing on his food with a pensive expression. He did not look like he had anything to add. I don't know, Grant. I... Joe paused to find the right words. I think he would be proud. Yeah, probably. Grant swallowed and looked at the food on his plate for a moment, then sighed and stood, pushing the plate away. He looked at Malcolm and quirked an eyebrow at him. You ready to do this? Malcolm looked surprised. He glanced at Joe quickly, then she gave a little nod. Better to keep Grant busy if he really was depressed. Malcolm swallowed down a gulp of water and stood. Let's go. The two men took their plates to the sanitizer, then strode out of the mess. As they passed, Malcolm gave Joe a little smile and a wave. 
Joe watched them go, concern for Grant weighing on her mind almost as much as her guilt. Almost. Joe made her way back to the bridge and settled into the command seat. She frowned at the active sensors display, suppressing a surge of annoyance at the lack of results. But then, they were a number of light hours away still. The returns from her radar sweep would not make it back to the ship for some time. That did not preclude a passive search, though. Joe keyed in a standard spectral analysis sweep for the two aft observation cameras. She would have preferred to use the forward cameras, which would not have the ship's wake to contend with, but the stern faced the star system, so the forward cameras would not be of much use, and settled back to wait on the results. A few minutes later, the intercom beeped and Malcolm's voice came through. Hydroponics is a total loss, he said. Well, that put a damper on things. It's nothing retrievable at all? Not enough to make it worthwhile. We'll have to pull the emergency stock from cryo and replant everything. Joe frowned. That would be a long, involved bit of work, and neither she nor Malcolm was a botanist. Grant certainly would not know his way around a hydroponics plant. Very few of the planet-bound had a clue about that sort of thing. But then, Grant really was not planet-bound anymore, was he? That was a curious thought. Alright, go ahead and get started. We've got, she glanced at the ship's status display, nine hours left on the burn. See what you can get done in that time. Aye, aye, Malcolm replied. The intercom went dead. Joe spared a minute to consider their situation. The hydroponics garden supplied most of the food for the crew. Most of the plants were high protein content and used to make sim meat. It was a bit more tasty than the planet bound Joe described it to assumed, and the other staples that saw them through. But the ships carried freeze-dried stores and protein paste tubes for emergencies. Stock could last for a good long time. More importantly, the gardens were the ship's primary atmosphere processing system, scrubbing CO2 from the crew's exhalations and replenishing the oxygen supply. There were backup chemical processes and water stores that could be broken down to bleed oxygen back into the air, but their capacities were limited. If Malcolm was not able to restore at least some of the garden, they could have a real problem for the long term. It helped that her crew was so very small, but it still warranted attention. Later. For now, the immediate concern was their mission. Long-term survival was important, but there was a greater than zero chance they would not survive the meeting with the aliens at all. Making sure that meeting went well, or even went at all, ranked a bit higher on her priority list. Chapter 61. Announcing One's Presence The alien star dominated the bridge's forward observation window. The window was designed to automatically polarize itself to minimize glare from outside, but that ended up blocking out a significant portion of the window, just as well that starships weren't normally flown from visual cues. It had been a busy day. Joe, Malcolm, and Grant spent most of the day working in hydroponics, with just a brief interruption when the main engines cut off right on schedule. Joe took a few minutes to maneuver the ship to point the system, then she initiated ring rotation and went down to work with Malcolm and Grant. They made good progress, uprooting a good third of the dead plants. They would not be able to replant for some time. Thawing from cryofreeze was a long, delicate process that, if not done correctly, would kill their precious seeds. It was not something Joe had any intention of rushing. Besides, the sheer immensity of Agrippa's interior volume meant they had plenty of time before air quality became a concern, and the emergency rations would last the three of them for months. They could afford to be deliberate. The three of them were in the cruise mess, enjoying a meal of protein paste, when a warbling alert from the ship's status display on the wall grabbed Joe's attention. She swallowed, and exchanged looks with Malcolm and Grant, a sudden mixture of excitement and apprehension flooding her. Sensor data's ready, Malcolm said with a quirked eyebrow. Joe nodded. She had set the alert specifically for that eventuality. They wasted no time, running out of the mess to the lift for the bridge. Looking at the polarized window, Joe smirked. They could have done this from control. 
but there was just something about being up in the bridge. The enhanced visibility of it just seemed a more appropriate place for a journey of discovery. And besides, the bridge was located on the ship's hub, not in one of the rings. With the main engine secured, they could enjoy zero-g for a time, something they would not partake in on the rings. Might as well have a bit of fun while they could. Let's see what we have, she said, and tapped the sensor analysis display to life. Her earlier passive scan revealed that it was a binary star system. She should not have been surprised by that. Far more systems were binary than single star. But the system's primary star, G-type, about 10% greater mass than Sol, outshined its brown dwarf partner so completely that Joe missed the dwarf with her naked eye. That was all well and good, but Joe wanted planetary data, and the passive sweep had been inconclusive for planets, except for one probable gas giant at the outer edge of the system's Goldilocks zone. If there had been more time, she could have gotten more data passively, but the analysis required to eke out planetary effects on the star was a long process, which was why they had been awaiting the active radar scan so eagerly. The computer took a few seconds to compile the data. The system chart, when it popped up, turned Joe's blood to ice water. Oh, crap she breathed. Four planets. The gas giant they had already found and three others that were likely rocky, but also were far too close to the star to support life. Or at least like humans or the aliens she had encountered on Pericles. And that was it. What do you mean, oh crap, Grant said. Where is it? Malcolm asked, right on his heels. Joe shook her head. Where is what? Real fear was in Grant's voice. He was completely out of his element, and if Joe and Malcolm had reason to be worried, how much worse would it be for him? Joe drew in a deep breath. The alien's homeworld. It should be here, but she trailed off, mystified. Grant's eyes widened, and he went pale. It's not here? He was almost shouting now, and Joe could not blame him. How could it not be here? She shook her head. I know we read the star map correctly. She glanced at Malcolm. Didn't we? He spread his hands helplessly. Oh, God, Grant said. He pushed himself halfway away from the command station and floated over to the rear of the bridge. He ran his hand through his hair and looked around frantically at the expanse of space all around him. Oh, shit. He was about to lose it. Grant, Joe said, moving over to him. It's okay. Relax. In a flash of movement, Grant grabbed her by the collar of her underway coveralls. Before she knew what was happening, her shoulders slammed painfully into the plastic glass of the port side observation window. Grant stared at her through eyes that were narrowed into angry, almost murderous slits. We risked everything for this. My brother died for this. Now these fucking alien critters aren't here? The last came out in a roar of fury and of pain so deep that Joe felt for a moment that she might have to drown in it of her own accord. She opened her mouth to reply, but what was there to say? Apparently, she had been wrong. Oh, so wrong in her analysis of everything. Maybe the aliens had not meant for them to bring the eggs here. Maybe... No, that made no sense. She had looked the alien leader in the eye as he... She whatever, made his request, as he gave them payment. The message could not have been anything else. Could not. She must have misread the star map. There was no other explanation that made sense. Joe began to apologize, but Malcolm interrupted. You two might want to take a look at this. He sounded calm and cool, as though nothing untoward was going on in the slightest. Grant gave a little jerk and looked away from Joe, his eyes still seething. What? he demanded. His expression said clearly that once he was done with Joe, Malcolm would be the next target of his ire. Malcolm stood, well floated really, with his arms at his side, his face a mask of calm. He gestured toward the sensor display. Slowly, agonizingly slowly, Grant let up the pressure on Joe's shoulders. He pushed himself away and bobbed over to Malcolm's side. Joe took a moment to compose herself. Her limbs were shaking, and she felt a fright she had not experienced in some time. Even her brief brawl with Agent Moore had not called up that much flight-or-flight response. 
But then again, she had gone to it reasonably sure she had a chance against more with Grant. Joe did not deceive herself. She had, she had some residual skills from her studies as a youth. But Grant was a trained expert. If he really wanted to do her ill, she would not be able to stop him. She shuddered, then drew a deep breath and forced herself to calm. Well, mostly calm. Then she maneuvered toward the two men. I don't get it, Grant said. What am I looking at? The fury, the terror, was gone from his voice, replaced by puzzlement and curiosity. Malcolm smiled ever so slightly and turned his gaze on Joe. A moon, he said. One of the gas giant's moons. It hit Joe like a ton of bricks, of course. It was well known that a large enough moon revolving around a gas giant could conceivably harbor life, though such places were so far exceedingly rare. Joe halted herself next to Malcolm, on the far side of Malcolm from Grant, and peered at the display. Sure enough, the gas giant's fourth major moon appeared to be about Earth mass, though its radius was significantly smaller. It was likely very heavy metal rich. That would explain the alien's compact size and great strength. The moon's gravitational field would be substantially greater than Earth at that radius. Assuming that moon was what they were looking for. Track in a camera, Joe said. She sounded a bit breathless, even to her own ears. Malcolm nodded, brought up the observation camera control screen, then trained the camera forward toward the moon. It took a long moment or two for the camera to align itself and then track in on the small body. Then finally, the image from the camera came up and Joe's jaw dropped. Her growing tension flew away, replaced by amazed wonder. The moon was just emerging from the gas giant's night side. It was covered by a mass of swirling white clouds over top a mottled blue and green surface. But Joe had seen that sort of planet many times. What caught her breath, and made her shiver a little, was the glittering ring. Clearly a construction of some sort that seemed to surround the moon. It was thick. From a more acute angle of approach than the one she was taking, Joe surmised it would probably obscure much of the moon itself. But what is that, she asked. Can you zoom in further? Malcolm frowned and tapped the magnification control. A moment later, the image zoomed in until the moon took up the entire display. The ring became clear. Joe could see several pylons of some sort that rose from the moon's surface and joined with the ring. Those could only be support structures for space elevators, which meant the entire ring had been constructed in geosynchronous orbit. That was amazing! The zoomed-in view revealed a multitude of vessels docking with and departing the ring. It was impossible for her to evaluate what each vessel's purpose was just by looking at them, but Joe found herself calling certain smaller ones tugs, others ferries, and still others cargo carriers. Then a new kind of vessel, larger than the others, got underway and Joe's breath caught. She had seen that sort of vessel before. Crescent-shaped, off-white in color, with a small blister on its dorsal section that must have been its bridge. The vessel was the same make as the one they encountered on Pericles all those years ago. She traded looks with Malcolm, and he nodded. He recognized it as well. Joe swallowed, a shiver of both excitement and anxiety going down her spine. There was no doubt about it now. This was the place. Son of a bitch, Grant said. That about sums it up, Joe replied, shooting him a quick grin. I guess we know where we're heading. Joe adjusted the ship's heading to intercept that one special world. Then she left the bridge. Grant surprised her. He found her an hour later as she was walking down the main passageway in the cruise section of Ring A, about halfway between the control and the captain's cabin. Her cabin. He approached slowly, almost tentatively, his normal confidence giving way to uncertainty. Joe found herself quirking an eyebrow, odd as his approach was. Grant coughed and looked at the deck. Joe, I... He ran his hand through his hair, then hurried on. I want to apologize for how I acted up on the bridge. He paused and looked back up at her. No excuse. His voice regained some of its normal assurance as he finished, but his eyes carried an unspoken plea. The apology took her aback. She did not expect one, and really none was needed. 
They had all been through a lot, sacrificed a lot for this mission, but Grant more than she and Malcolm. It was completely understandable that he would feel anger if it turned out that his sacrifice, as large as it had been, was for nothing. Thank you, Joe said. I can't begin to know how you're feeling. I said there's no excuse. Joe paused, considering. That's true, but there is an explanation, and a valid one. Grant's eyes narrowed as he considered her words, then he nodded quickly. I trust nothing like this will happen again. Joe used her Captain Means business voice. Sometimes it helped to assume an authoritative stance, and Grant seemed to be the sort who wanted and needed a hierarchy to belong to. He nodded again, more deeply. No, it won't. Joe held his gaze for a long moment, then nodded. Farewell. See that it doesn't. Grant turned away then and walked back toward Section B, where hydroponics was located. He almost wore a smile as he left. After a short nap, Joe went back up onto the bridge and strapped into the pilot station. The straps were not necessary, but they saved her having to constantly adjust herself in the zero-g environment. After a while, sitting there, staring at the camera, display of their destination, she frowned. There was something odd, but she could not put her finger on what. The little voice in the back of her head quipped about the entire situation being off, but she paid it no heed. Something was missing from the picture, something that should be there. She frowned and called up the spectrographic analysis display. The moon's atmospheric conditions were what she expected from the last encounter with the aliens, primarily nitrogen and oxygen, with CO2 and helium levels that were significantly higher than Earth's. That was not it. Maybe it was the anticipation of the coming meeting, and of her relative inaction now, after so much running around before. Preparations for the meeting were made as well as they could be, and she found she was more hindrance than help down in hydroponics. Ripping a bunch of dead, dying, or decayed plant material out of the bins and prepping them for new seedlings was not something she was particularly good at, and besides, someone had to monitor their approach to the moon. But still, it nagged at her for almost an hour before she hit upon it. It was so obvious that she was surprised she had not noticed it before. The silence. The entire time they drew nearer to the system and to the moon, Agrippa's communications equipment had not picked up a single signal in any frequency range except for normal background static. That was unheard of in Joe's experience. The channels should have been full of navigation beacons, traffic control, entertainment networks, the list went on and on. But here there was nothing. The aliens sure did not seem to be talking to each other. Joe frowned and looked back at the moon, now fully visible on the gas giant's day side. The mass of vessels docking and getting underway, transiting the area, or just sitting in a stationary orbit was no less than it had been the first time she saw it. But if that was so, why no radio chatter? Surely an operation as complex as that ring would require an extensive communications network to avoid conflicts and ensure that things ran smoothly. Joe checked the receivers again, then ran the cell diagnostic utility. Everything was in good working order. There was simply nothing to receive. It was very puzzling. Perhaps they did not use radio. But if not radio, what? That was a rabbit hole with no end, and pointless. Even if the aliens did not use radio channels to communicate, they must surely be able to receive them. It was her broadcast from Pericles to the crippled ship that initiated their first meeting, after all. Joe glanced at the navigation display, about ten light hours from the planet. They should arrive in about a day. Politeness dictated announcing their arrival beforehand, and Joe figured this was as good a time as any. She called up the communications controls again. Now, what did the first contact procedures for Starlander say about the communications system? Although it had been years since she accessed the contact protocols aboard Pericles, Joe remembered the keystrokes as though it had happened yesterday. She tapped them in, hoping the algorithms had not been changed. Her hope was rewarded as the screen shifted to a yellow-bordered command access display. 
The controls were exactly as Joe remembered them from the encounter aboard the Pericles. She pointed the directional antennas at the planet, then a couple of taps later, the ship's antenna status indications lit up across all bands. If the aliens had not detected a grip already, they would in a few hours. Now there was little to do but wait. The beeping of the proximity alarm roused Joe from a fitful sleep. She was still on the bridge at the pilot station. She must have drifted off without realizing it. She began cursing herself for allowing that to happen before experience made her stop. Sleep was a weapon, and a necessity. It would be far worse to push herself past endurance than to grab a little shut-eye when opportunity presented itself. Joe shook her head and, wiping sleep from her eyes, tapped the control pad to wake up the sensor display. Even though she knew intellectually what was out there, she gasped and felt a surge of adrenaline when she saw it on the display. Two crescent-shaped off-white ships just like the one she saw earlier were paralleling her course, one on either side of Agrippa at a distance of 10 kilometers. It looked as though her message had been received. Alert! Alert! Aliens off the port bow! And the starboard bow! Aliens everywhere! <laughs> oh boy! What are we doing? Oh, wait! Ah, ah, why did we come here? Oh my gosh! This is kind of nuts. Um, but hey, here we are. Uh, it... The alien ships are flanking Agrippa on both sides and about to have our big meeting. Only two chapters to go, so clearly a lot's going to happen, or you know, or maybe they'll just get blasted out of existence. I guess we'll find out. But the uh, the stage is set, the meeting is imminent, and uh, that's cool. You'll have to come back for the next time to find out what happens next. Uh, as always, you can uh, subscribe to the YouTube Mitshoot channels and or subscribe to the podcast if uh, you're listening through there and get it without any any issues. If you prefer to buy the book, I won't stop you because that gets me some money and it costs uh, a fair amount of time to write the thing and a fair amount of time to uh, do these recordings and do the hundred and what am I, 106 episodes of the podcast now. Um, getting... Do it for fun, but also as a means of doing some business. So, yeah, come by MichaelKingswood.com. You can click on the links there to get the site, uh, the book from whatever awesome site you like. Or even better, go straight to my web store at SSNStorytelling.com and get it from there. Uh, if you don't want to do that, that's cool. But definitely tell all your friends and neighbors about the book and about this podcast channel, about what we're doing here. Especially since you obviously love it, since you keep coming back. Um... And consider coming over to uh, my site, like I said, MikeNeesWeb.com, and becoming a member. Uh, what that does is, uh, hey, you throw a couple bucks my way you know, on a monthly basis, and you get short stories, or you get access to everything I put out, or, you know, a bunch of different little things, uh, depending on how much you give. And uh, just a little bit of payment for time, and you're showing some support for what we're doing, if we like what I'm doing here. Anyway, yeah, so that's all that I got. Uh, hopefully you enjoy these chapters. Uh, two more to go, and we'll be out to you with them quite promptly here. And then we'll move on to short stories, as I said before. Hope you guys uh, have a great week. I'll talk to you next time. Until then, don't do anything I wouldn't do. <laughs>